All right, if you would, let's turn over to John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter number 1. John chapter number 1. I want to draw our attention to verse number 14. We'll be dealing with uh, much of this text this morning, but I want to just draw our attention to one verse as we begin. Uh, probably the most familiar of the verses that we're going to read, although uh, par certainly part of the whole of this uh, glorious passage, the first chapter of the book of the Gospel of John. It says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Our subject this morning is taken from that verse, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, we certainly are making much of the incarnation this morning, and we're certainly doing that uh, with great intention. And this particular introductory chapter of the book of John is uh, certainly, uh, even by human writing standards, uh, is an extremely prolific portion of Scripture. Uh, now we know that man's standards and human acknowledgement of those things is certainly uh, nowhere near the supernatural discerning work of the Spirit, but it is a, it is a masterpiece of writing. Uh, the subject in which it deals with uh, the, the, the principles and the concepts that are given, uh, they certainly are glorious truths. But when we understand them from the perspective of God's Word and God's Word to man, certainly that's the perspective that we look most favorably upon. It is that which gives us this great hope. Uh, often when we see the introduction of a particular chapter and a particular book, and uh, we're, of course, not starting a new exposition on the book of John. We did that uh, a couple of years ago now, I believe. But we're taking these, these verses that are dealing with the incarnation today. And as we did in our 10 o'clock hour, how we use the scripture to look at the answers to the question of how did Christ as the Son of God become man. And again, we saw those texts that so clearly show us how this was the fulfillment of prophecy. This was uh, exactly the way and the timing in which the prophets had said this Messiah would come. And of course, this phrase here, the word was made flesh, uh, we see the incarnation and then in dwelt among us, we understand that to be he tabernacled with us or the word in which we refer to as Emmanuel. So my prayer this morning is, of course, not to expound as deeply as we might do if we were uh, going in a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the chapter or the book like we've done previously, but I hope that we'll at least see the great truth in which John was pointing us to about the incarnation. Uh, you'll notice that the, the beginning words of this chapter uh, begin with very similar to how the Bible begins, in the beginning. Uh, we know Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. Uh, it is not by coincidence that John 1-1 also refers to in the beginning was the Word. Of course, John is making reference here to the Word, and this is an acknowledgment of Christ the Word. Uh, his existence has been from all of eternity. 
I understand that today there are some who, uh, when they see the babe in a manger, they believe that is an ordinary birth. That's just like any other child that's been born. And we did learn this morning that uh, he was in all points human. He was born as any other child. But that was not the beginning of his existence. Uh, Christ did not begin there. He's existed from all of eternity. So Christ, the Word, has existed from all of eternity. Uh, he is the very eternal Son of the eternal Father. And it's important to keep that in mind. The eternal Son of the eternal Father. Uh, he has no beginning and He has no ending. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. So we see very clearly here that there's an acknowledgement. Uh, this word, the Word, is a reference to what is the divine Logos, uh, whom we know as Christ of God. Uh, so we see, just as we do in the beginning in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. We see in similar fashion here, in the beginning was the Word. So we come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was in the beginning. Uh, we see in the first part of the Bible in Genesis that uh, when, when there is let us make man in our own image, that is a reference to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So we are settling the matter that Jesus did not begin in the manger. He has existed eternally, and he is the eternal Son of God. John goes on in verse 1 and says, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's intention here is, is to make a very clear distinction between them. Uh, there is a, uh, a distinction that's being given here so that we understand that there's a reference being made to the second person of the Trinity. I think Sproul put it best when he said the eternal second person of the Trinity who from all eternity was very God of very God became man. So he's distinguishing the reality that this is a distinct person of the Trinity. The Word is a reference to Christ the Son. So the Word was just as much truly God as the Father is God. Again, we have to be very careful in our day and age in which we live to be sure we understand how to refer or make reference to God. That there is one God in three persons, and these things do matter. Uh, it's not uh, three individual gods. It's one God in three persons. It's the mysterious uh, principle in the teaching of the Trinity. So the Word was truly God, just as, Father, as the Father was God. The Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit. These are the three in one. It has always been that way. They've always been one. They weren't one time separated. It's always been the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So there is that reference that Jesus Christ, and what John is writing here, is that he is the very God of very God. Uh, he is the God-man. Uh, it is Jesus that is being referenced here as the Word. So it is an important distinction that's being made here. Now, those who would take the opposing view and would say, I don't believe or see how Christ is deity, uh, you, you would have to ignore the plain teaching of Scripture in this text to deny the deity of Christ. Uh, there is no more plainer declaration of Christ 
deity than the passages and the verses we're reading. You see very clearly that the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. In other words, as the Father worked in the beginning, so the Son also worked. There is, this, this, uh, there is no separation from the standpoint to say that Jesus is not God or that the Father is God, the Spirit is God, but that Jesus isn't. It is a plain, clear declaration that Christ is from the beginning. He was with God in His glory. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And in His nature, He was God. So very important to keep the distinction. He was with God in his glory in the beginning, and he is in his nature. He is and was God. So the same was in the beginning with God. Notice John goes on to write, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, again, I realize that this morning we're not doing a, as deep of an exposition as I normally would do. But I want you to notice here, again, verse 3. Notice the use of the word, all things were made by him. This is a reference back to the word. This is the reality of the everlasting Godhead. All things made by him, Christ... Okay, he is the maker, just as God the Father and the Spirit was. Notice how distinctive this is. And without him was not anything made that was made. That means there's absolutely positively nothing in this world that was made that he did not make. Okay, you, you cannot have creation without the word. You cannot have creation without Christ. Nothing, there's not a thing made that was made without him. Now notice, he goes on and he says, in him was life. Or we might say, by him was life, and the life was the light of men. Okay, now the light of Christ, okay, he is in the beginning with God, because he is God. All things were made by him. We've established that without him, nothing was made that was made. And in him, or the word, Christ was life. And he says that the life was the light. Okay, very clear here. The, the life was the light. The life in Christ was the light. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness, darkness comprehended it not. The light of Christ here is being described as shining into the darkness. Now, oftentimes we say that the light was not shining until Christ's incarnation, but I would submit to you that the light of Christ was even shining in creation. But it was, it was, it was what we might refer to as it was, in, it, it was kind of enshrouded. It, it's before he came here to live in the flesh. John makes mention that very few, very few comprehend what that light is. Very few not only do not comprehend it, they certainly don't rejoice in it. Christ's light is shining brightly even today. Even though he is not here, humanly speaking, the light of Christ is shining brightly. It is the light of men. It is the light in which man finds life. 
eternal life. Life is in him. Verse four, in him was life or by him. It's the only place and the only way that life is found. So you have the word who has existed before from all of eternity. There's nothing that was made without him. There is this everlasting Godhead that John is talking about here, and yet he's, he's zeroing in on the importance of the life that was found in the light of Jesus Christ. Christ's light continues to shine brightly, but the darkness of the corrupt soul of man does not perceive it, does not acknowledge it, until the Holy Spirit does a work in the heart of that man opens blind eyes it's the work of regeneration it's the work of the holy spirit that gives sight to those who were at one time blinded in other words just the reason that just the fact that a light is shining does not imply that all men are saved because the light is shining but the the light Life is in Christ. He has given us the power to see and to understand. This very Christ that we think about who came robed in human flesh, never ceasing to be God, is the same God who will later hang upon a cross. He who is from everlasting, the maker of all the worlds, the maker of all created things, he that came and is an infant, he who came and took on that robe of human flesh. Think about how low Christ had to condescend to sinners. He had to come from the glory of the right hand of his Father. He who is a creator of all things. Yet we see the beauty that in him was life, not just in essence, but eternal life. The life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness. The darkness comprehends it not. Sometimes we may blame it on the reality that man just doesn't want to see. Man does not want to acknowledge the light. But it's very important to understand that John makes this distinction that the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. That means something has to take place for man to actually comprehend what that light is. You know, there's, there's lots of crude illustrations I could give you. I'm hesitant to give any of them. But the realities are that we can, we can see a light in the distance but have no clue as to what that light actually is. We can look out on a field on a very dark night and look across acres and acres of a field and see a distant light, and maybe that light's not normally there. We can look across, we see the light, but we can't comprehend what's producing that light, nor can we fully understand who is sending that light or what it is. So just the reality that a man acknowledges or a woman acknowledges there's light doesn't mean we comprehend what that light is. And John is getting into this reality saying that the only way that a man can comprehend what that light is is if man is given the ability to understand what that light means. And again, we sometimes find ourselves being, sometimes I, I hope it's not our pattern, but we become very uh, critical when people don't comprehend spiritual conversations that we're having. 
Folks, just you telling people that there's a light doesn't mean they comprehend it. They're in darkness. And just because a light's shining doesn't mean everybody sees and understands what that light means. Now this takes an interesting turn because now we see that this introductory, introductory verses bring us to the part for us to understand who this light is. And then we're introduced to this man sent from John, or sent from God rather, whose name was John. Now interesting, it, I like the phraseology here because it simply tells us there was a man, John. Not a God, not an angel. There was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. Think about this. We've gone now from the Word of God to now being told about a man sent from God, and we're told this man's name. His name was John. Jesus, of course, testified about who John is. He said, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, yet from the greatest of the prophets... Think about what he's being given to proclaim. To bring man to understand Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That question we answered in the 10 o'clock hour. How does Christ, the Son of God, become man? That's John's prophecy. The theme of the book of John is so that you may believe. Its purpose is to point us not only to the light, but point us to understand who the light is. That's what John is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is bringing us to this place of a greater understanding of who this Christ is. John's words, of course, they are, they are grand words. They are words of a man that Jesus himself said there is no person born of women that are greater than John the Baptist. Remember, both of those, both Jesus and John, their first message, their first sermon, both started with the same word, repent. John, of course, was the prophesied forerunner. He was the one that would prepare the way. Later on, we're not going to look at it today, but he's the one later in John chapter 1 who says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John. But notice how he's described. The same, or John, came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Very clearly, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now, this is partially important on one, on one hand, is because remember, there were many in John's day who believed that he was the Messiah. His messages and the way he conducted and the things he was preaching, people began to say, are you the Christ? John, very distinctly, by the, by the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us again and again, he came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, and we're told very clearly that he was not that light. Again, just seeing a light in the distance does not tell us what it is, but John is going to very, very clearly declare, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. I am not 
the Word who is made flesh. I am not Emmanuel. Okay, now that makes verse 14 even make more sense now where we're, how we're started there and now we're kind of, we're, we're rising up to that. He was not that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Again, we would never ever imply that just because the light shines means that everyone is saved. It's not the idea of this universal fatherhood that all will ultimately be saved. But he is the true light. Now notice John adds the word true. Now the, te- the, t- the tone here and the sense is, is that this is by himself alone, one light. He produces the light. He does not get his light from some other source. In other words, Christ doesn't draw his light from something else. He is the light. Just like when we say God is love. We don't mean God draws love from some other source. He's actually love. Which means the word is actually light. John was not light and he was not that light. He is drawing the light in which he's preaching from another source. The source is whom? From Christ. It's very clear how John writes this, of course, under the inspiration of the Spirit. Shows us this was something John could not do. John could not produce the light that man should comprehend. He could only bear witness to Christ, the true light. There was no light coming from John except whatever he was getting from the true light. Every man who has been, has understands and comprehends the light only understands that light as it's been given to them through God himself. Again, we have to be careful even in our evangelism just by telling people, here's all you have to do. All you have to do is look at the light. Again, you know what I mean here. Just look. No, it still takes a work, a regenerating work of the Spirit for man to comprehend what that light is. Okay, so we got to be careful. Sometimes our evangelism turns into that. We, just, we, we assume everybody is going to comprehend what you're saying. Remember, there would be no comprehension in you had God not given it to you. So notice he goes on, verse 10. He was in the world. Now this is back to a reference, from, reference to Christ. And the world was made by him and the world knew him not. Or the world was in darkness. Even in creation, Christ was being manifested. Okay, now we understand that uh, just creation is not enough to save a soul. However, we do understand that there's a reference being made here that even though Jesus was in the world, he's the maker of the world, still the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now think about that for a moment. He was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. This is a reference to the gulf that's between the sinner and God. Now that gulf is created by sin, right? We're estranged from God because of sin. It is that gulf that is fixed. 
Sin, again, I, we, we, could, we could probably park on this for a while, and I won't do so today, but we are very ignorant in our human mind of what sin actually does to our ability to reason. So that when we begin to reason things, we don't take into account that even our reasoning is corrupted by sin. Sometimes we think, well, I've thought this through. Or we use the cliche term, I have peace about my reasoning. Understand, yes, as a child of God, you do have a new nature, but you still have the old man alive and well, which means you still can reason things according to the sin nature and come to false conclusions and say, well, I have peace about that. The world is estranged from God, and this is one of those verses that clearly shows us that. He was in the world, he's a maker of the world, and the world still doesn't know him. It's really a terrible thought. It's a sad verse. Jesus is a stranger in his own house. Jesus, who is their creation, is walking among his creation, and his creation does not acknowledge him as the light. Think about that for a minute. Think about the, think about the ego of humanity, a person who thinks himself to be something. And he walks into a room of people and nobody recognizes him. His ego is bruised. He says, why doesn't anybody notice me? Don't they know who I am? And yet Jesus walked among his own people, the very line in which he was born through, and they didn't know him. Men whom he had made, made nothing of him. Simply, he means nothing to us. Now, folks, there are people all over the world today who know nothing of Christ and don't care that they don't know anything about Him. Sin so estranges man from God that man is not even aware many times of his own estrangement. Although, again, we understand that the world knows Him not. They didn't recognize Him, even the nation of Israel did not recognize him. He came unto his own. This is a reference to those out of the, those who were chosen out of all nations upon the earth. Principally, it talks about those specifically who were the receivers of the first oracles. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those who should have most known him received him not. Those who were nearest, if you let me use this, kin to him did know him. Again, estrangement that sin causes. This favored circle of people, the Jewish nation, revelation had been given through the prophets. There was no place for him. Now again, this is not a surprise. Isaiah 53 tells us, Isaiah 53, 3, that he must be despised and rejected by his own nation. That was a fulfillment of prophecy. He had to be rejected. Again, our human reasoning takes us back sometimes and says, why did the Jews reject him? Prophecy says they must. This was part of what was going to happen. It's part of the fulfillment of what's taking place. And yet, he's rejected even by his own nation. But then, as I mention often, here's one of those theological connecting words. But 
right? It's like the therefores. Here's the sad news. Here's the sad verse. He's coming to the world. He's coming to his own. His own receives him not. The people that should have known him, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they don't receive him, but look what it says, as many as received him. To them, and notice this, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. As many as received him. Though Christ's own nation, for the most part, the Jews, as a whole, received him not, there is still a, a remnant. Those who are according to the election of grace. There were some who received him. There are still some today. But notice it says, He gave them power to become the sons of God. This is the enlightening that the Spirit gives. This is God changing their will. This is not them choosing this. This is God changing their will to receive Him. He gave them power to become the sons of men to those that believe on His name, as many as received Him. Now again, there's always theological arguments here. How come there are people who receive Him and others reject Him? Biblically speaking, our position biblically would be that the, and there's the reason that there are some that receive and those that reject is something has to be the difference maker. A change has to be made so that those who are in darkness now see the light and comprehend the light and know what it is. And those who don't. Now again, I know this is where it gets that great controversy between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. But scripturally speaking, you see that there's got to be a change by God himself that changes the person's view of who the light is. That's why we give all glory to God for our salvation. That great change that is birthed in us when we are born again makes us different. That's why Jesus, when he's speaking with Nicodemus, was saying, you must be born again. Notice he didn't ask Nicodemus at that time either. Nicodemus, do you want to be born again right now? He didn't ask him. He doesn't say, do you want to do this now? And later on, we can kind of look through the book of John and when he anoints the Lord's body for his burial, there's a suggestion that he have now, Nicodemus, somewhere along the line, his eyes were open to the great truth. But he wasn't asked, Jesus didn't ask Nicodemus to receive him. Notice he goes on, all these verses connect. Which were born, who are the which, those who received him, gave him power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. There's, there's no more clear statement about what's taking place in this verse than that one right there. Those who were received him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. They were not, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. What is that a reference to? The will of the flesh is a reference to our shameful and corrupt nature. It is empty of any spiritual righteousness. The flesh, the flesh, the flesh, the flesh, it is the very corrupt part of us. He said, these that received me were not born of the flesh, but rather born of the Spirit. 
They're not of the will of man. Notice there, not nor of the will of man, but of God. So those who received Christ, those who truly believed on Christ, who are people who have been born again. Now again, I know we get into this controversy with people and they think, well, that sounds like a pretty arrogant religion you're following there. It's anything but arrogant. But it does clearly say that there are some who have been born again and there are some who have not been born again. Those who have experienced a supernatural birth. Again, back to the conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. He's given the illustration of being born of the flesh, born humanly speaking, and then born supernaturally, spiritually. So folks, it is not an insult to say that there are those who have been born again, who have been saved, who are believers, and that there are people who are not. There are only two types of people in the world, believers and non-believers. There is no such thing as people that are close. There's no such people, there's no such people that are like, I've, I've, I'm so close that God's got to count me. No. You either are a believer, the light has shined and you've comprehended it, or you are still in darkness. You might see the light, but you can't comprehend it. Now, what do we do as people who know and know who Christ is? We aren't the light. We are simply messengers. We give the word of God to people. Your greatest evangelistic tool is not your reason and your intellect. It's scripture. That's your greatest evangelism. Gospel tracts are great. Your evangelism is even greater if you use scripture. You say, but there are deep truths they can't possibly understand. <laughs> that's your sin. That's your flesh convincing you that they can't understand Scripture. The Holy Spirit is what gives us understanding. It gives us the ability to recognize there are those who have been supernaturally born. They are people who are set apart. They've been, they were born humanly, right? But they were also spiritually reborn. They've been born again. So, in the receiving of Christ, a man must be born of God. <laughs> Now, you would think that if it was only dependent upon man, then it should be the easiest thing in the world. If it's all dependent upon man, just open the door. Then why doesn't everybody open the door? If all you have to do to be guaranteed this, an eternity with God, what's your delay? Just open the door. Because he came unto his own and his own received him not. They knew the prophecies. They knew what the Bible said. Yet when he showed up, no one's opening the door and letting him in. If that's all it is, and if that's all we're supposed to do, is just tell people, all you have to do is open up your heart and let God in. You, have, you are committing evangelistic heresy there. You can't just say, open the door and let God in. All that's keeping you from God is opening the door. No, you have to be, they have to be born again. Folks, when you have conversation with people who've actually truly been born again, they may not always be able to put it in exact words of what's happening, but they know that it was not of their own will and it was not of their own doing, but that Christ opened their eyes to something that they had not seen previously. And they may have sat and heard preaching and teaching for years. So what happens? They're born of God. 
not of the will of man. They have to be born from above. And that brings us to where we started. All of that introduction to bring us to what we, he says here. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him, cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. The eternal Lord, the eternal Word, takes upon Himself human nature, as we learned even at 10 o'clock, human nature, a body, and a soul. We looked at the text, answered those questions this morning. He took on even the infirmities of that body. He got hungry, He got wearied. All those infirmities and all points tempted like as we are, yet without what? Sin. Everything that humanity is, he had, he experienced the physical needs, thirst, hunger, weariness, tiredness. Yet in all those things, he didn't sin. Now you see what separates him in his humanity from every other human being who has lived or ever will live. Because there is no human who can say they are without sin. There's no human that can absolve the sin of another person. There's no human being who can look at another human and say, I am forgiving your sins. Just go and do a few things and your sin is resolved. The Word, the eternal God who is the maker and creator of all things, who has existed eternally, was made flesh. He did truly become a man, yet without sin. What did he do? He dwelt to tabernacle with us. It is where the glory resides. Where does he dwell? Among us. And we, John says, beheld his glory. Now John is speaking as an eyewitness here. Seeing Christ not just as a person to believe on, but seeing Him as the very God. When we, are, when we are calling on people to repent and believe, we are not calling on them to believe just on a person. We're calling them to believe on the eternal Word. A great distinction there. There is absolutely no way to know God. There's no way to be reconciled to God except through Jesus Christ. So a person that says, I know God, but knows not Christ, does not truly know God. John again writes as beholding, beholding His glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father. That's a reference to John 3.16. We see it very clearly there. Full of grace and truth. Again, John bare witness, testified, crying. Notice, notice the direction in his words. Saying, this was he of whom I spake. Clearly deflecting any type of idea that, this, that I'm the light, that you should put your faith in me. He says, no, this is where you look. 
That's why later on in this chapter, the next day, verse 29, he seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which take away the sin of the world. John would never say that about just a human person. He would never say, listen, just look at this human who can take away the sin. No, he's pointing to the eternal word. He who became flesh. Now it's interesting here because we see that there's a mention of the law being made here. The law, verse number 17, was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Again, we could park here for a while, but understand something, that the reason for the law was to be our schoolmaster, Paul said. It was to point us to the reality that we need a Savior. The law has great merit and great value, of course, in the fact that it burdens us, and sometimes the law even crushes us, it convinces us, and it condemns us. But understand, and let's be clear about this, that notice in connection with the law, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if all of eternity, that's where the story stopped? For the law was given by Moses, period. You and I would be left with an impossible task. You would have to perfectly keep the law to be acceptable to God. All your hope ends, if that verse ends right there, and that's not added, everything ends. Again, another use of the great theological word, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You cannot see you do not want to see God apart from Christ. We see God. That's why he says no man has seen God at any time. The reference is the only one who has seen God is the only begotten Son. That means the only person who has looked into the very face of God is Jesus Christ himself. The only begotten Son. What a beautiful picture that is. Apart from Christ... Okay, what, did, what, did, uh, what was one of Moses' requests? He wanted to see God. If he'd have looked into the face of God, it would have killed him. You realize apart from Christ, the light of God would blind you. You wouldn't be able to see. The only way you can see the Father is to see the Son who is the light. That's what's in, that's what's in mind here. Apart from Christ, we would be blinded. Again, crude earthly illustration. And I'm not recommending this. Do not do this. Underline, highlight, do not do this. Do not go out and look directly at the sun and see how long you can look. You say, that's an old wives tale. Nothing going to happen to your eyes. Don't try it. It'll blind you. Think about it for a moment. The sun is glorious, right? Was last week or so physically when it was so dreary and we were all just saying, dear God, give me one hour of sunlight. Just one. But at the same time, that light, if you look straight into it, it'll destroy, it'll blind you. How can it possibly be the same thing that brings glory, brings life, which is the sun, brings physical life, 
Yet to look straight at it, that same thing will kill you. It'll also burn up. That same sun we enjoy now, the same sun in the summertime becomes hot. And now it starts scorching things. Same sun that's out there right now. But you see, the difference is, it's the beauty of what's happening here, is we are now able to look upon the Father. We're able to be before the Son because of the only begotten Son, which I like what he says here, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. It is Christ who's declaring the Father. Every time we, as, as we spend our life as Christians and those who are in Christ, day after day, we're moving closer. We should be moving closer and closer to the glory and the beauty that it is to be understanding of that light. To know that we are of the family of God. And yet knowing that it was only by God's grace. Notice he says of his fullness have we all received grace for grace. It's piled upon. It's like one stone upon another. It keeps building and it keeps building and it keeps building so that everything about our salvation is crowned with the glory of Jesus Christ. Some might say, how do we make people know Christ? You know, other than dealing with difficult family issues as a pastor, the second most asked question is just that. How do I make people understand? What you're asking me is you're asking me to tell you how to make them comprehend the light. And I will give you the same answer. You become as a messenger of the light and you proclaim the gospel. You proclaim the truth of God's word. See, we always think we need to add a little bit more to it. When the reality is we've been given all that we need to evangelize people properly in the word. The word of God is our greatest evangelistic tool. I use that word hesitantly, but you understand what I mean. It's, it is our source. When John was saying, behold, the Lamb of God, he wasn't holding up the New Testament scriptures. He was pointing to the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures that were there and saying, this is the one you should know. And that's what you and I are to do. We understand that by our personal acknowledgement, we know that he's full of grace. We know that he's full of truth. We know that he can cleanse even the most wicked of hearts. And we can speak of him, he who is full of truth. We can take the promises of his word that says he will in no wise cast out. We will not be rejected. But yet remember that this God, this Christ, is too high, too holy for us to just simply say, all you have to do is perceive him with human eyes. That's why the argument, if Jesus Christ would just come in flesh again, everybody would believe. No, they would not. It's still going to require a work of God. Saying, oh, what we need today is we, we just need, a, we need something new. I mean, I've heard the latest thing too. And maybe it's not the latest. Maybe I'm just slow. We need a whole, we need another Pentecost. No, we don't. We've already had a coming of the Spirit. The Spirit now indwells every believer. And yet, whatever of God we need to know, we see it in Christ. In Christ, we see enough to save. 
We see enough to actually satisfy us. We see that which sanctifies us. We're being conformed in the image of Jesus Christ day after day. And yet we have all the reason in the world to have hope. That last phrase, he hath declared him. Folks, today is it not the only day that we should set aside and say, here's a day to declare the word being made flesh. That's the gospel. That's the very essence of our standing in Christ is the incarnation. If the only time we talk about the incarnation is just on days like Christmas Day or around Christmas Day, we're missing the great piece of what the Bible talks, of, talks about. Jesus Christ is the light. He is the way to the Father. And for those who have not yet repented of their sins and believed on Christ, that's the command. Not repent and believe on the preacher, not believe on the church member, not believe on baptism, not believe on offering, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how can I do that? I say this and I say, look, beg God to show you. Plead with God to save you. That kind of a... Of a, of a of a declaration has disappeared from so many pulpits. Beg God to save you. Beg God to open your eyes that you might see. All that come unto him, he will no wise cast out. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your precious word. Not just the pages of the scripture, but the word the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is from everlasting, who came to this earth to save sinners. Lord, I pray and I am thankful, Lord, that we are able to exalt a Savior of the world. Lord, may we never grow ashamed of the gospel. May we never be frightened to speak the truth of the word of God. And Father, thank you for saving souls like us Lord, no one here who's been truly saved, no, they do not believe for a moment that they're saved because they're good. They're saved because of your mercy. And how that truth, I pray, would just find a deep resting place in our heart. Lord, bless this time as we bring it to a close. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, let's finish by singing the hymn.